This message is brought to you by House on the Rock Fellowship. We are a church that serves and cares for the Miami Valley region in Ohio. Before you continue, make sure to access the notes from our download section of our message page and have your Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. We're going to continue that series today. We're going to take a break next week for Global Church Sunday and come back to it. But talking about what is prayer and why pray? Why pray? And we found out that really we're created to do it. That's, that's why we're here. To pour out our hearts to God in praise and petition and confession and thanksgiving. To be a bridge between heaven and earth. But we don't like being a team player. And so we resisted that call. In fact, we opened the door up to let spiritual forces of evil kind of wreck the place. And we ourselves participate in the same wrecking. We make a mess of everything. But we began to unpack that in Jesus' name, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he has reestablished, he has interceded, he has bridged something. Because interceding prayer, it means that we're going to meet with God, we can plead with God, we can bridge and reach between two places. Sometimes we can even breach the forces of evil. We're going to talk about that today, actually. What does breaching look like? And in Jesus' name, because of the authority that he has and he has shared with his church, we can participate in his ministry. His will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Last week we talked about um, bringing people before the Father for reconciliation and restoration. Uh, restoring that relationship. And out of that same book that we looked at last week, the Apostle Paul talks about how he deals with what he calls spiritual strongholds. Maybe you've experienced in your own life, in your own faith, or walking alongside other people, that sometimes things just don't want to move. Things are hard and there's a hostility and there's a resistance. People have, a loved one has, barriers between themselves and the gospel. That upon real reflection, like, wow, it's, it's like something has kind of blinded them, hardened them, keeps them from moving forward with Christ. The Apostle Paul experienced that very thing. And he wrote about how he dealt with what he calls spiritual strongholds here in the life of that church in Corinth. And I think if we are able to apply what we look at today, we might see quite a revival in our own prayer life as we learn how to pray strategically and tactically and care for others and bring them before Jesus, bring them before the Father, the way that we see Jesus doing, okay? So take out your copy of the Bible, okay? And find 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is where we were last week, and we're going to come back to that. We're going to start in chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6. 3 through 6.
Before I read that, I want us to have a certain framework of thinking, a way of seeing things. The way that maybe the Apostle Paul did that prompted him to write the way that he does in this passage. Because it's very militant. It's very militant. It's very aggressive. And when you think about prayer, you might not think about it in these terms. The Apostle Paul was from Tarsus. Tarsus was the capital of Cilicia. And what we would think of as modern, modern day Turkey. The eastern side of the Mediterranean. And along that coast, for years and years and years, uh, Cilician pirates had set up strongholds all along the coast. And pirates do what you imagine pirates doing. They laid waste to the Roman trade routes, back and forth between Rome and the parts of the known world. And they would sack ships and sack towns. And they would take all of this loot back to over a hundred different strongholds that they'd built into the coast and rocky mountainside of the geography, where the Apostle Paul was ultimately from. Inside, they would have kept their resources for building ships. They would have kept gold and brass and other metals that they'd accumulated in their raiding, but also... They also kept a large gathering of captives, slaves that they would sell and also use in building and running this pirate program. Well, as you can imagine, the Roman Empire doesn't take too kindly to people picking off their ships. And so the legions were sent to go deal with this. And it was assumed that this is going to take a long time. These pirates are hunkered down in big strongholds, in big rocky fortresses. This is going to take a long siege war. They're going to need all the siege engines that they can possibly gather. This is going to take a long time. Well, the opposite is actually true. In fact, I want to read to you the historical account from the history of Rome. This was written about 40 years after the Apostle Paul. Okay, so this is his history. This, is, this account is about uh, removed from the Apostle Paul as you are from World War II or the Korean War. So it's part of the national history. They know these tales. Pompey, that was the general who was sent from Rome, himself hastened to Cilicia with forces of various kinds and many engines. Okay, engines, not motorcycles, not tractors, not tanks. Okay, engines, siege engines. Think of three specific types of siege engines. They had what was called a battering ram. Okay, take like the central mast of a ship, long, long, huge tree. Put a giant, giant iron head on one end. Sometimes it'd actually be shaped like a ram. And suspend that from a structure. They'd put a canopy over it so no one could drop on them. And they'd swing it back and they'd pound into the side of the fortress. Pound into the side of the stronghold to break down that wall. Romans, they'd wheel these things all over the place. Battering rams. They had siege towers tall towers that they can move up alongside of, of the wall and grappling hooks that would anchor them to the wall so that the Roman army could get over the top of the wall. They also had mines. 
And they would work to dig underneath. That's where we get the term to undermine someone. To go underneath. You're like, oh, fun fact. Huh. Learn something new. Great. To come underneath the foundation of that wall so that it would crumble. So they had multiple siege techniques, okay? He expected that there would be a need of every kind of fighting and every kind of siege against the rock-bound citadels. But he needed nothing. The terror of his name, the greatness of his preparations, had produced a panic amongst the pirates. They hoped that if they did not resist, that they might receive a lenient treatment. First, those who held Cragus and Anticragus, those are great names for castles, right? Castle Cragus, Castle Anticragus. It just sounds right. As opposed to like Castle Butterfly. That doesn't do anything, right? Cragus. These are the largest citadels. They surrendered themselves. And after them, the mountaineers of Cilicia. And finally, all one after another. They gave up at the same time a great quantity of arms, some completed, others in workshops, also their ships, some still on the stocks, others already afloat, some brass, iron, collected for building them, sailcloth, rope, various kinds of materials, and finally, a multitude of captives, either held for ransom or chained to their tasks. Pompey burned the materials, carried away the ships, and sent the captives back to their respective countries. Many of them there and their hometowns found their own cenotaphs. A cenotaph is like a memorial stone, believing that someone is dead. So they come back to their hometown and everyone thought they were dead. Like, hey, look, it's me. I'm here. Woo! These pirates who had evidently fallen into this way of life, not from wickedness, but from poverty, consequent upon the war, Pompey resettled. And Malice, Adana, Epiphania, and other uninhabited or thinly peopled towns in rough Cilicia. Some of them he sent to Dima and Achaia. Thus the war against the pirates, which it was supposed would prove very difficult, was brought to an end by Pompey in just a few days. He took 71 ships by capture, 306 by surrender from the pirates, 120 of their towns, castles and other places of rendezvous. About 10,000 of the pirates were slain in battle. These mighty strongholds, the moment that those who'd established the strongholds saw the Roman legions getting close, surrendered themselves immediately. What was expected to take a very long time only took a moment of days. It's that type of history, those types of engines of war, battering rams and siege towers and undermining the arguments that the Apostle Paul grabs a hold of when he talks about how he prays and ministers inside of this church that has set up some resistance to him. And people are saying, well, maybe the Apostle Paul doesn't have what it takes. The Apostle Paul in very militant language says, this is how I deal with these situations. Prayerfully proclaiming, we tear down these strongholds. I think what we're going to see is this is going to help us as we talk about growing in the area of prayer. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to walk you through this passage and then I'm going to show you how this works from the ministry of Jesus. Second Corinthians 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 3, down through 6. And as I read, see if you can't hear and identify some of these military phrases, just the tone that he's using. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We're not waging war. This is not a physical war. This is a spiritual war. There are spiritual strongholds at play in the life of this church, in the life of individuals, in the lives of people you know. And he says, we work and minister and pray in such a way to tear those strongholds down. So when you think stronghold, don't think foxhole, okay? Stronghold, citadel, castle, fortress, not physical, spiritual, mental, relational, dwelling inside of people and how they see the world. And he identifies three of them specifically. He says this. He says, our weapons, verse 4, the weapons of our warfare, not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy, tear down, dismantle strongholds. We destroy, first, arguments. He says, some strongholds exist in the mind. A stronghold of the mind is false thinking, false believing, false structures of thought. One of the difficulties that people have in embracing the gospel is they believe wrong things. They believe wrong ideas. They've embraced lies. And so it makes it very difficult for them to step in and embrace the truth of the gospel because they've built up around them false structures of thought. He says we have to deal with their thinking. They got stinking thinking. He goes on to say, every lofty opinion they destroy, Raised against the knowledge of God. Imagine a castle. Imagine the tall towers that exist around the castle. This is lofty opinion. Lofty views of self. um, Attitudes of pride. Hearts that have allowed sin to take a hold of. And pride has let a person lift themselves up. He says there are strongholds in the heart that we have to deal with that we have to pray against. Maybe you've bumped into that when you talk to people and you try to share what Jesus has done and who Jesus is and how Jesus came to save us who are corrupt and treasonous. They're like, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. They've set themselves up. 
The Apostle Paul says we have to prayerfully see that stronghold come down. Or they've allowed certain sins to accumulate in their life, habits accumulate in their life, which hardens their heart. Hardens the way they see spiritual truth that limits their capacity. Maybe even now, I can see it in some of your faces, you're thinking about individuals. Or maybe even thinking about your own story. Yeah, I know what that's like. Yeah, I know people like that. Because we destroy these arguments, strongholds of the mind. We have to destroy strongholds that are in their heart, hearts of pride and false humility. And then he goes on to say, and we take every thought captive. This, these are demonic schemes that have attached themselves to these individuals. You're like, why do you say that? It just says thoughts. Paul uses this word five times in his letter, okay? That word for thoughts. And what I want to show you is every single time that the Apostle Paul uses it in this letter, it's communicating a very similar thing and it alludes to something very evil and nefarious that's behind it. Not just a thought, but a system of thoughts, plans, purposes, scheming that have built up as strongholds around a person that are demonically, satanically driven and empowered. So let me take you to the beginning of 2 Corinthians and I'm going to show you 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to show you a verse in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, then chapter 11, we'll come back to 10. I just want you to see this word as it's used in context when he talks about these thoughts that need to be taken captive, torn down. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, 2 Corinthians 2, 11 the Apostle Paul is talking about the importance of forgiveness, the place of forgiveness, the presence of Christ, and why that needs to happen. Then he says this in verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. See that word designs? It's the same word as thoughts taken captive back in that other chapter. Apostle Paul says, hey, we know how Satan works. We're not going to be outwitted, outgeneraled, outplayed by him. We know his schemes. We know how he likes to surround individuals. A demonic system, a stronghold. And here in this context, he says, so we walk in forgiveness. We practice forgiveness. We're not going to let him get a foothold, a scheme of bad thinking build up within us. Okay, look over in chapter three. In chapter three, he's talking about um, Israelites in the past and Jews that struggle with the gospel now. In verse 14, chapter three, verse 14, their minds, their thinking, same word, are hardened. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the Torah, Jewish Bible, 
a same veil unlifted. Only through Christ is that veil taken away. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Apostle Paul said, our Jewish brothers and sisters that are struggling with the gospel in the same way that Moses had to be veiled to kept the glory of God from shining out. He says there seems to be something that veils their hearts. It veils their minds. It's that same word, that thinking, those thoughts that's used in that other chapter. But if you keep reading, if you go down to chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, using that same kind of idea in chapter 4, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds. That word minds is that same word there we're talking about. Thoughts, thinking of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Apostle Paul says, when we bump into someone and they're resistant to the gospel, they're resistant to reconciliation, he says, the God of this world, the reason there is hell on earth, their hearts, their minds are veiled. A stronghold has been built around them spiritually that keeps them, stops them, if you jump over to verse uh, to chapter 11, one more example. Chapter 11, one more example. Paul is talking about his love for the church and how he prays that they grow, but he has some serious concerns that they'll stray from the gospel. I'm going to read into it. We're going to, we're going to look at, focus in on verse 3, but let me read you into it. Uh, starting in verse 1. I wish you'd bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. That's how I feel when I preach sometimes. Bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Your thoughts, it's that same word. He, he says again and again and again, and this is what he's talking about in, in chapter 10, where he says, there are these thoughts that have to be taken captive. There are scheming and thinking that leads to hardened hearts, veiled minds. They are demonic constructs and strongholds that have been allowed to be established within that person that leads them to dwell in darkness. How many of you think you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's something when you bump into it, it defies common sense as you talk to this person. And as you grow to become more and more spiritually attuned, you're like, we're not just dealing with someone having a bad day. Something has spiritually, someone has spiritually encircled and established 
pirated that person's soul. But the Apostle Paul says, we tear it down. We tear it down. He says, we have a weapon. It is not an earthly weapon. It is not a, a weapon of the flesh. It's not a nine mil. We're not going to cap them. Because it's not the person. It's not the person. It's a stronghold within that person that needs to be confronted. It is a weapon that has divine power, he says in verse 3 and verse 4. It is the prayerful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we take these things captive to the obedience of Christ. So if we're dealing with something of the mind, if we're dealing with bad arguments and untruths and fallacies, we pray that like a battering ram, the truth of Jesus would just pound and pound and whittle away at that mental stronghold. That God would do whatever he needs to do to tear that down. If it's something in their heart, pride, habitual sin, a stronghold, a stronghold of the heart, like a siege tower, we pray that the love of Jesus would surround that person. Embrace that person. Overwhelm that person with who Jesus really is. The truth of Jesus, the love of Jesus. When we encounter these spiritual schemes, these demonic structures that veil their mind and harden their heart, that keep someone from the gospel, we undermine that structure with the authority of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. This is why when you get to the end of the letter, the apostle Paul says, this is what we learned last week. It's your restoration that we're praying for. It's so easy when we bump into individuals that require more grace than others to think it's the person, right? The Apostle Paul says in some cases, you have to understand that mentally something has grabbed a hold of how they see the world. In their heart, in their spiritual being, it's very possible Something has built up around them. Pride has insulated. Sin has insulated. That schemes of demonic forces, like Eve in the garden, like a veil going over someone's eyes so they can't see. These strongholds exist and prevail. As the Apostle Paul says, we tear them down. We tear them down. How do you do that? Let me show you a story in Jesus's life where you see this in living color. And maybe it'll help us as we think about those that we pray for, even praying for ourselves. This is in Mark chapter five. Mark chapter five. A familiar story to some, 
But maybe we can see with fresh eyes through the power of the Spirit today as we think about spiritual strongholds and what Jesus does. This is a story about a man that no one could help. A man that many loved, but no one could help. As I do, as we, you know, you guys know me, we'll go through the story. I'm just, I'll stop you at a couple places. I just want to draw your attention, okay? Mark chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. You follow along. If you're online, good to see you guys. Got your pajamas on, that's cool. I just bust and I love you. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Okay. Other side. Let's just hold on to that. Circle that phrase. Think about that. Remember when we talk about interceding, sometimes it's reaching, right? There's this geographical feel to it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're bridging a distance. Jesus is leaving Judea proper. He's leaving where he's established ministry, where he's well known. He's now going to the other side of the tracks. He's going to the other side of the sea. This is pagan land. Jesus isn't known there. He still has authority, but he's not known. You know people that live there spiritually. Maybe you've been there. You know what it's like to live there, to be on the other side. Not in the place of promise, not in the place of restoration and reconciliation, not to be in the place of God's favor, but to be outside of grace. Jesus is going to the other side. He loves them too. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him. Encounter, think interceding, because sometimes interceding means meeting. Out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. What does that mean? Maybe you can imagine some geography in your mind. Okay, Jesus and the disciples, the boat hits the coast. Up above, ahead of Jesus, is a long rise, a mountainous, rocky rise where there are tombs that have been built into. We're outside of the cities proper. You don't put the tombs and the cemeteries inside the towns. You put them on the outside. And as Jesus has hit the coast, immediately screaming and wailing at the top of his lungs as a man making a beeline straight towards Jesus. If I were Peter, I probably would have gotten back in the boat. Right? Jesus doesn't get back in the boat. What does Jesus do? There's a reason Jesus has come. He lived among the tombs, the place of death, the place of darkness. And it says, and no one could bind him anymore not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. I used to, when I read that passage, think about good old crazy Larry that everyone tried to chain down. He'd just go nuts. And there goes crazy Larry. We got to bind him up and get him out because he's doing his crazy thing again. But then I started to think to myself, as you read it, because of the anguish that he's in, because of the torment that he deals with every waking moment of his day, because of what has 
taken habitat of his soul. They're just trying to give him any sense of peace that they possibly can. Because left to his own self, he'll start cutting himself again. He'll start running into things again. He'll start throwing himself into fire again. As the demonic beings are trying to destroy this being. And so it's out of love. They're trying to create whatever structures they can to protect him. However they are able to protect him. Except he keeps breaking through them. Have you ever done that? Do you know what that's like in your own life? Just in your own life? You try to have areas of victory and you try to grow in various areas of your faith and you set up systems of your own making only to have them broken pretty quickly as the old demons come back to roost. Sometimes we'll describe it that way. Or for another person. There is one that you love and there is one that you care about, but they seem to keep falling back into the old systems of sin and corruption and habit. And no matter what you've tried to do, just nothing seems to work. Anyone know what that's like? Yeah. Because there's nothing that we can do, is there? Save one. No one had the strength to subdue him. I've been there. I've been there. Verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Who's speaking here? Who's speaking here? Is it a man? Man, I know who Jesus is. Who's talking? The evil forces, the demons. They recognize and they notice. They recognize what? They fall before and are pleading for clemency, for leniency. Why? Because Jesus has authority. But notice what their argument is. What are you doing here? This is the other side. Aren't you supposed to be back in the Jewish side? That's your place. This is our place. This is our land. This is where we have. This is where we do. Jesus, what are you doing here? Be merciful to us. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man. You unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Uh, Legion's a military term. Okay, if you're talking about Legion within the Roman Empire, a Legion's 10,000 soldiers. Okay, that's not to say that there were 10,000 demons inside of them. It's a way of saying there's a lot of us and we're a hot mess. Okay, there's a lot. There's a lot. One is plenty. This is to say a lot. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Uh, demonic forces like to anchor themselves in a specific set of geography. It's kind of how they're designed, how they're structured. Okay? Demonic forces systemically. That's why you think about a haunting of a house. How houses will be haunted. Because demons will latch onto a particular location. He says, don't send us out of this place. This is our place. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. 
Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. Why? He has authority. And the unclean spirits came out of and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And everyone gets this part like, all right, that's weird. I'm like, yeah, it's weird. So we don't really need to talk about it. it yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Why is it there? I think it's there um, in the story just to remind us that this is pagan land. This is in Jewish land. You've got pigs running all over the place. You've got demons that want to hang out in pigs. It's just all wrong. It's all wrong. Okay? We good? Do not send me emails about the pigs. Okay? Just, just don't. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the country. <laughs> You're just trying to tend your pigs. and all They're gone. They're into the ocean. Like it's, it's Jesus is the guy who did it. The people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. Oh, look, there's crazy Larry. The one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind. Why? Because sometimes there are what? Mental strongholds. There are heart strongholds. There are spiritual strongholds. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And then they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. Isn't that sad? You ever meet people like that? Like no matter what spiritual good happens, they just have to complain about it. No matter what Jesus has done, they just have to gripe. As he was getting into the boat, Jesus the man who had been possessed, been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him. But said, and this is beautiful. It's what Jesus said to the man. No, go home. Go home. Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How he has had mercy on you. And so he went away. And he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Isn't that beautiful? What was a bastion, a stronghold, a citadel of evil? Jesus brought down and transformed into a lighthouse of life and hope and grace. Because Jesus tore that stronghold down. So Paul, are we supposed to like go demon hunting now? Like, is that like the thing that we're supposed to like, are we demon hunters? Like Ghostbusters with proton packs? And we're supposed to go off and like do this thing where we hunt for demons and trap them and, you know, start yelling. And there are many famous preachers and pastors and televangelists that get a lot of good play because it makes for a good show yelling at demons, right? Here's the thing. It's just not biblical. It's not biblical. There are a few places in the Gospels where Jesus speaks directly to spiritual forces of evil. They are forces that have possessed a human being. That's a different situation. It happens. 
the majority of the time, what you and I will bump into are strongholds that people have allowed spiritual forces to build up around us. In those cases, who do we pray to? We pray to the Father, right? In Jesus' name. You don't yell at demons, okay? That doesn't even make sense if you think about it. Like, well, if you yell louder, then they'll listen to you. Really? Really? Oh, the big bad human yelled at me. I'll get out now. Maybe if you yell louder, maybe if you danced a little bit more, maybe if you spoke weird, then the demon would, would submit to you. No, it doesn't work that way. Why? Because it's not about power. It's about authority. Okay? They have power. The stronghold is powerful. But the weapons that we wield, the prayerful proclamation of the gospel has authority in Jesus' name. You, you see this, Curtis, this passage of 1 John chapter 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see it? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, dismantle, tear apart, bring down what? The works, the established schemes, the structures, the power base of who? The devil. I thought Jesus came so I could go to the happy place. Didn't Jesus come so I can go to the happy place? This is the happy place. The reason it's hell on earth is because we let hell come to earth. And now what are we praying? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Here on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's why he said to Matthew and the disciples and Peter in Matthew chapter 16, 18 and 19, I've given you the keys. You have the keys. My sons love the keys. In fact, we just had a conversation. Love them. My kids probably hate being pastor's kids. But hey, dad, can I have the keys? What do they want the keys to? The car. Why do they want the keys to the car? Because if you have the keys, then you can what? Operate the car. Right? Keys unlock the car. Keys make the car go. Keys lock things. Car, keys loose things. Keys open things up. Keys shut things down. And Jesus says, Matthew chapter 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. My church. It's not about power. It's about authority. It's about authority. Let me illustrate, Okay. Uh, I had the chance to watch one of my sons play soccer on my birthday. Well-fought game, well-fought game. Uh, one of his players was completely wiped out, hardcore, almost like clotheslined. He was running one way, the other players coming, took him right down, okay? Wiped him out. He got up mad. He's a big boy. He got up mad, real mad. So mad, he looks at the ref, you gonna do anything about this? A demonstration of power, right? He's being big, he's being loud. Referee begins to walk over. The player then cusses out the ref and then gives them a certain finger sign. A demonstration of power. The referee then gave him a demonstration of authority, a red one. Referee didn't have to yell. Referee didn't have to dance all over the place and scream. He didn't have to shake. He didn't have to do anything. 
Why? Because the referee has authority. The player then proceeded to leave the field. Why? Because Raph has authority. He walked over to the coach and proceeded to cuss out the coach. At which point the coach then gave him a demonstration of authority. You leave. You leave. And that player and the whole family that came with that player got in the car and had to leave. Yeah. You don't have power. You have authority. You have authority. So let's see if we can't maybe put this to practice, okay? See if we can't put this to practice. I had said when we first uh, began this series that what spurned this was an experience that I had at a retreat center that I go to on a monthly basis for prayer. That I had wanted to, at that retreat center, go down into the prairie where I have my prayer bench next to the river, but I couldn't do that because the paths were closed. Okay, and the paths were closed. And I was rather annoyed that the paths were closed because I wanted to go down to the happy place. And I couldn't get to the happy place because the paths were closed. When I asked the groundskeeper, hey, why are the paths closed? Like, yes, we have coyotes. Coyotes have been attacking the dogs and attacking the people that hike down there. So all the paths are closed until we figure out what we need to do about it. So, okay. I went back there this last week. It was time. Maybe my prayer bench will be open. Maybe I can go down there. Maybe they've dealt with it. The old sign was gone that said paths closed. New sign. Coyotes on the premises. Leash your dogs. Like, all right. I respect that. Now, I did find it entertaining as I walked down there. I saw a guy with two dogs and they weren't on any leashes. Okay. But why is that important? Well, what are the dogs going to want to do? Chase, right? But we're not demon chasers, are we? We're not demon hunters. No, that's not what we do. We're going to move forward. We're going to move forward, but we're going to leash our dogs, okay? This isn't about good marketing. This isn't about a book deal. This isn't about fancy sales. This is about being effective for the kingdom of Jesus. So leash your dogs, okay? And how do we pray? Let me give you an example. I'm going to use myself, okay? If I'm going to pray for me from an interceding perspective with those strongholds in mind, okay? I'm going to pray for my mind. I'm going to pray for the heart. I'm going to pray for the spiritual strongholds. I'm going to use the Lord's Prayer as a bit of a skeleton to hang my words on, okay? It might look like this, okay? I'm praying for myself, okay? This is just an example. Uh, Father God, I come in Jesus' name that your kingdom come and your will be done here in my mind. And Father, where there are strongholds in my mind, I pray in Jesus' name that you would tear them down as I think about the gospel and how much Jesus cares for me. Jesus, I know that there can be strongholds and have been strongholds in my heart. May your kingdom come and your will be done here in my heart. Remove pride. Remove the habitats of sin, the habits of the strongholds of sin. Would you tear those down and deliver me from evil in my heart? Jesus, I know that the forces of evil want to build up strongholds around me and in me for their purpose. Jesus, I pray in your name, that you would remove those spiritual forces of evil, that I could be free and walk free. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Again, Jesus, in your name I pray, amen. I'm not screaming. I'm not yelling. Why? God doesn't need a hearing aid. 
okay? God doesn't need a hearing aid. I'm talking to the Father. And remember what we learned in the beginning when it comes to creation and recreation. The Father wills it. The Father wills my restoration in the same way the Father willed the restoration of the man who had the demons. And the Spirit, ready to breathe life in, right? That's what the Spirit does, hovering over the darkness in Genesis chapter 1. But what has to happen? The Son has to speak it. That man was not set free until who showed up and spoke? Jesus. Jesus. So as the band comes up, the artists come up, would you stand with me? Maybe um, you have some people that are on your heart and on your mind. That as you have been listening, their face keeps coming up. Because possibly, probably, prominently, strongholds exist in them. Maybe in their mind, maybe in their heart. Spiritual strongholds of evil. And so we're going to do what Jesus called us to do. Think about how corporate the Lord's prayer is. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Deliver us from evil. And so I'm going to turn off the microphone uh, so that my voice isn't overpowering your voice. And you're going to pray. I encourage you to pray. You don't have to pray loudly, but I encourage you to pray vocally. Pray for some individuals. Pray for their mind, the strongholds that might exist in their mind, strongholds that exist in their heart, spiritual strongholds of evil that have surrounded them and they want to harden them to the gospel. We're going to pray for these out loud. If you're watching online, I'd encourage you to do the same thing and then um, we'll participate in song. Let's pray. Thank you for sharing your time with us and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. And that's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless.